My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight in the studio, a man who has worked in the White House Communications Agency, the Secret Service, been a contractor with the Department of Defense, and earned his Green Beret in 1986. That gives him a total of over 49 years of service to this country. He's now an author who signed a three-book deal with Force Poseidon Publishing, and he's looking forward to retiring to focus on his writing and visiting his bucket list destinations and restaurants. Tonight, I'm excited to introduce Steve Stratton. What's going on, man? Hey, DJ. Thanks for having me on, man. This is awesome. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm so excited that you're here. We've had a couple technical difficulties tonight, but we're pretty much on time of getting this thing started. But I have a ton of stuff to talk to you about. And I want to start with, I heard you talk, and uh, you were talking about your military career, and we'll get into it in a minute. But I want to talk about something in particular. You mentioned Fort Sill and how much you didn't like it. Now, I'm from Oklahoma. <laughs> I went to Fort Sill for artillery training. I was a Ford observer, and I just want to know what your problem is with it. <laughs> um, one day coming out to find my car completely covered in mud because it happened to rain during a dust storm. Um, let's see, what would be the second thing? Uh, without telling us, we're standing in formation, and they blow off a simulated nuke, and there's a mushroom cloud over the classroom. And I'm thinking, this can't be good. And the captain's over in the corner smiling, you know, he, he knows what's going on. Uh, but no, it was a, it was a, it was a good stop. Uh, some of the fun stuff that happened there was right down the hall was the ground sur surveillance radar guys. And they used to have this big, long saber looking thing to actually like ground out the, the Klystron and the capacitors, like get rid of the electricity in the system. And it would arc like a Frankenstein movie. And once every two or three days, medics had run down the corridor by the room to pick those poor guys up. And uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was a fun time. I remember there was a there was a place out. out I think it was I it must have been on post, but it was like the, the MWR area. You remember? And, and there's some I like snakes and there was a lot of big snakes out there. It was amazing. So. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of snakes, so I'm going to have to disagree <laughs> with you there. Uh, but, you know, Fort Sill has that big firing area. So I had heard you talking about that, and I thought, man, what's his problem with that place? Just because he got some mud on his car, that's not a big deal. But let's go back a little further. So you were born in Northern California, um, and you joined the Army, even though you came from a whole family of Navy, Merchant Marines, all these guys from the water. You said, eh, I'll get sick if I get on a ship. So you joined the Army. How did that happen, and what did your family think about it after you did it? Well, yeah, funny story. So I was pretty mercenary when I was looking around. It was looking at who had the best training. And at that time, for electronics, 
the Navy had the very best training. Um, there were stories, and I don't know how true it was back then, but that when you finished your ET training, you know, through Great Lakes and, and wherever else it might be, you almost came away with a college degree. You were just a few credits short kind of idea. And I thought that was pretty nice, but the chance of staying ashore and not, <laughs> I, let's just say, I, I could wear a bunch of scalamine patches and all the band, you know, all the bands and stuff, and I'm still going to get green around the gills. <laughs> so I don't know what happened in the family DNA, like you said, uncles, uh, merchant marines during World War II, Navy, uh, dad at Fort Island, um, you know, in Hawaii, all these dream spots. But yeah, I decided, you know, I'd spent time in the woods. I was a Boy Scout at heart, right? A woodsman. And so uh, eventually uh, I couldn't, uh, the, the army won me over. And at the time, at the end of Vietnam, there was uh, for technical people, because all the, the um, draftees were being, you know, let go, there was uh, a lot of potential for promotion way faster than my brother and I found out later in the Air Force or the Navy and things like that. So, Well, you said Fort Island. So did you actually live on Fort Island? No, that, that was when my, that dad, was... my dad left school in the eighth grade, he and my uncle, and somehow they, they ended up in the Navy. So he was a uh, aircraft mechanic on Fort Island. Okay. And, uh, I went to dive school there when Korea. I was stationed in Hawaii. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an interesting place to go back now. And actually, I think they've turned it into, they've taken part of the Intel Center down off the hill and put it inside. Oh, Fort really? Island there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you've still got the submarine museum and other things there. It's a beautiful right. spot, of course. Oh, absolutely. Pearl and Fort Island. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so when you went in the Army, what was your original MOS? Well, originally, I was going to go right up to Fort Lewis. And uh, where my father actually grew up outside the base, not too far away. And I was going to be an O5B, a radio operator in a ranger regiment. Um, but when I was in basic training, uh, these guys in suits and longer hair showed up at the theater and started talking about this stuff that I couldn't really make out. But it was something in Washington and it was full per diem and civilian clothes and long hair. And I thought, ooh, you know. That's a little bit more James Bond than crawling around in the mud like a ranger. So I kept raising my hand and, and volunteering and volunteering. And then, so they, they changed me from right away. They changed my orders so that I would then go through electronics training. And the first part of that electronics training was actually at Fort Sill because a lot of the early computers in the army were all about fire control, right? So um, anyway, so I went to that school. Then I went to, to down to Fort Gordon but they, they changed me in the, in the middle of basic and essentially gave me a new contract to become what was called a, um, a 31 Echo, a depot radio repairman, which I, then I started to think, oh, wait a minute, am I going to D.C. and going to march around in front of the Tomb of the Unknown? Or am I going to just be stuck, you know, in some warehouse in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, just repairing radios the whole time? And. You know, that's not because I, I still had that idea, sort of like my my uncles and my dad about seeing the world. Right. That's one of the things about the Navy. You know, you might see the Pacific or you might see the Atlantic, but you've got a chance to see the world. So I still had that in my brain. Um, but they changed that. And uh, yeah, that's how I got to, like I say, Fort Sill, then eventually to Fort Gordon to electronics training. 
Well, let's talk about a couple of the things that you took tests for to go to like OCS to DLI and you, you scored just below getting in it. You, you had this trouble of that, that one point stopping you from getting a lot of places. Uh, <laughs> that's a true story. Um, when I got in and I don't know if they were just excited to see somebody who was excited to be in the army, you know, the drill instructors, cause they kept putting me through these tests. DLI, you need an 18. I got a 17. You know, um, if I had a couple more credits of junior college, just barely anything at all, you know, they wanted to send me to OCS. It, that would have been pretty much a mess. Cause I was, I was, <laughs> let's say, yeah, me as an officer would have been, I, I'd have become an NCO pretty quickly. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that was that was sort of strange. It was uh, I spent most of my time in basic training, uh, like not in the field with the guys when it was raining and stuff just happened to be and they got gassed in, in basic training at Fort Ord. I was uh, cooking for the, 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 the spec eight. I was cooking for the chief cook of the, the company and stuff like that. And so I had a different experience than most people at basic and things like that. So. Well, and that's what was so interesting to me, because if you look throughout your whole career, until you got the Green Beret, you never really were a field guy or, uh, you know, combat arms and stuff like that. And and when you kind of stepped away from that whole life, the communications, White House, wherever, when you stepped away from that whole life, that's when you kind of decided like, hey, you know, I'm going to go that route. But we, we can get into that in a minute. I want to talk about the White House, though. So when you get this White House Communications Agency, which once again spells out in your career, because I start to see a chain of events, you took the test to go there. Uh, no way. I'm sorry. That's for Secret Service. We'll, we'll wait for that. But yeah. the Communications <laughs> Agency. So you go to the White House, you start working, but you had a pretty cool job. I mean, you were backing up presidents, vice presidents, uh, that kind of stuff. So what did that entail when you went there? So, um, yeah, oftentimes... Um, the White House Communications Agency does a lot of stuff. Like, they're the ones that put the plaque up on the on the on the podium. They're the ones that set up the microphone. They do all the audiovisual around the White House and the speeches and stuff like that. Or even on the road, right? When the president's going to motorcade up in Sacramento, some one of the guys will put the plaque on the the proper White House plaque, you know, presidential plaque, and then turn on the AV and stuff like that. And even back in my day, we had a whole photo photo. Uh, group a photography group that had it we had over at bowling air force base we had our own photo lab right and actually the we would process even the photos from the presidential photographers and stuff like that so walk is rather big and large supporting the president both in dc you know camp david if they've got a second home like the bushes or nixon right nixon had it in both san clemente and and then back and down in uh in, in Florida, right? He had homes in two places and stuff like that. So uh, WACA is a very cool organization. Normally what they do is they go out a couple weeks in advance. So support the Secret Service and the staff with, with radio gear back in the day, right? And phone systems, things like that. And then um, set up communication. So uh, like in Atlanta, we would set up diff seven different tower sites so that we could communicate and look down between the buildings and keep the Secret Service connected, uh, you know, from the agents at the site they're going to and where they just left and then motorcade and those kind of things like that. So 
Um, I started off in, uh, in the, the small radio, sort of the walkie-talkie group. I ended up uh, doing some stuff with a crypto switchboard and then some, uh, a bunch of stuff with HF where when, I mean, this is sort of the fun part of the story is like when Rockefeller decides before they're going to leave, he's going to leave the administration, right? They're going to get the, the vote in 80 or before, I mean, Carter, um, he travels around the world. So I go out in advance of him and I spend two weeks in Bali waiting for him to show up, spend maybe an hour and a half on the island, then leave, you know? So it's not, <laughs> it can be a good gig. Um, a lot of fun travel for a guy who had never done anything other than go to Tijuana. So, <laughs> I, I, and I don't know how many people I would tell I went to Tijuana. So, well, the kid and the big sombra, right? Right. You know, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, it, it, you mentioned, you know, how they had a photo team and all that kind of stuff. I, I want to a little bit about the technology differences from from then until now and and i know of course you still don't work well i mean you do work in that area but in this kind of era where we have cell phones and everything can be recorded and uh no one's really any you know no one's never really in private there's cameras everywhere there's all these kind of things what do you think the differences are between when you worked at the white house on things like that and today's time is is it more difficult is it less difficult you know just kind of give us a lay of the land on technology yeah and that depends if you're offensive or, or defensive right from a cyber it standpoint am i protecting a, a government agency an organization a command or am i on the offense um yeah um <laughs> you know you you know you're getting a little long in the tooth when your stuff is showing up in the nsa crypto museum <laughs> the spy <laughs> museum you know other places around town the planes i flew in are in presidential libraries in the boeing museum so um yeah technology has changed i mean one of the first great changes we got right was uh, i mean radios were moving along and we were starting to get encryption even in little motorola handsets i remember having uh, being in new york city and showing some folks at a commercial um, company that I had a, a, a little slim back on the, my Motorola gray flip phone and it was encryption, right? And um, that was a big deal. But uh, GPS for me was the first big, you know, um, beside, besides my little Commodore computer and things like that was the big achievement, right? Now we have precision of where we are in the world. And now look at it. We've got, I can tell if you're holding a cell phone or if somebody else is holding a cell phone by gait, heart rate, you know, all the accelerometers, other things like that. I mean, every time you touch a cell phone, over 100 events are flying off, right? Whether or not they use it to bill you or, you know, they're watching your ads or, or just, you know, watching what's going on with the phone and your geolocation. It's crazy. You're right. It is, it is much harder to disconnect. I mean, we could just you know, back in back in the, in the mid to late 70s, if you wanted to disconnect, you literally just walked out of the house and went to West Virginia. Right. You know, you, you were or Michigan somewhere. You just disconnected. There was nothing there. And if you couldn't walk to help, hopefully you got some flares or some way to you know, signal help. Right. A signal mirror. Right. Remember that we we had those. Um, so, yeah, the, it's funny, I was just talking to my wife about my grandmother, my great grandmother had come across in a Conestoga wagon. So she's, she was a child in a Conestoga wagon 
and, and reading comics and, and pulp fiction stuff about Wyatt Earp. And then she saw moon launch, you know, she saw telephone, radio, electricity, moon launch, all this kind of stuff. And then the acceleration that we had from the moon launch from the 60s to where we're at today, unbelievable, right? Um, you know, we can put, we can save somebody's life, but by putting an implant under their skin and helping their heart beat regular, things like this. So yeah, the, in, in, from the communication standpoint, now we're going back the other way, right, to fight for privacy. Well, right? and that that was what I was going to mention was a lot of people have trouble with that. Uh, a lot of people think that there is too much of an invasion of, of privacy, um, that you can click on all these things on your phone that'll say whether it can follow you, whether it can track you at all times or just when you're using the app. And then, of course, there's conspiracy theories flying around that no matter what you say on that, the phone's going to track you, that it's going to bring out information, and they say Apple versus Android. What are your thoughts on something like that? Because I, I believe that, you know, sometimes I think my phone is actually listening to me because you'll say something, and then an ad will pop up on Facebook or whatever. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I remember in um, what had been about 2008, a company built started by a bunch of Russian um, cryptographers and, and super scientists in, in, in California. They're living in the States now, but they started this company called, called Tea Leaf. And I, I remember seeing the first time somebody was looking over my shoulder at a website. And it was all about helping commercial companies make sure that the websites work, that you didn't leave, you know, a basket with 55 bucks, you know, Un unfulfilled um, buy out there. But that idea that looking over the shoulder in a commercial sense was was shocking. And today, um, like you said, it's all in the name of helping you make choices and of course put choices in front of you, right? We've all seen the AT&T ad where you walk in and if you happen to be looking left at these kind of shirts, then that kind of stuff comes up, right? And um, yeah, that our, our privacy has been invaded very heavily, whether we like it or not. And it's our choice to turn that kind of thing off. You know, a lot of people make fun of people with burner phones, uh, crickets, very simple devices, but they, they make that choice for a reason. Uh, there are sometimes I like convenience. And then like when I go in the woods, most of the time just to save battery, I'll turn everything off, right? Because my GPS still works. Now, of course, that means that if, if I'm using my GPS, so could anybody else, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, I used to give this course and, and put up the big picture and it's, it would have Facebook, it would have Google, it would have NSA, and I'd say, who, who knows the most about you? You know, and there'd be a bunch of group of people that say NSA, oh, you know? no way. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. If they want to, if there's a, a FISA court order or something like that, yeah, they're going to know something about you. But it actually won't be NSA because it's a DOD organization. But, you know, it'll be some federal organization. Maybe it's FinCEN because you're cheating on your taxes or something. But, um, yeah, Google and all the bots and the things that they, if, if somebody was to open either an Android or an Apple phone and look at all the things that are running, they'd probably be shocked by how much collection is going on on a, on a second by second basis. Right. 
Yeah. And, and when you mention it, you know, when you say like, does NSA, Google, Facebook <laughs> do all those, know, which one knows more? Well, Google's with you 24 hours a day. Facebook is with you 24 hours a day. The NSA, yes and no, it's with you 24 <laughs> hours a day. But you're definitely looking at Facebook and Google way more than you're looking at the NSA website or doing anything like that. So all these things are learning you. And you kind of get into that question, whether it's convenience or it's conformity. Uh, a lot of people think that, that, you know, a lot of people base their opinions. Look at all of, of Russia and Ukraine, all of the the propaganda that came out of there at the very beginning of it and, and kind of shaped the way the war was going and different things like that. With that kind of stuff, though, you've worked in that field forever. And I wanted to talk about this later, but I think it's a good time right now. How dangerous is it for the United States right now? You have China on the rise. You have Russia on the rise. You have all these bad states on the rise. How much should we worry about cyber attacks on the United States? Uh, the, the threat is high. I'm still uh, building software and get threat information that drives additional. Every time we make a software release, we're improving the internal security of our software because the threat is so high. Um, the. Um, my all my my data has been stolen i don't know like 16 17 times so far well, life life so insurance, i guess you don't have life lock well it it, it 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 doesn't matter as much as i change my I, you should see one of my passwords you you shouldn't actually yeah but, <laughs> you know what i mean the um yeah i did have life lock for a while but of course it didn't stop the chinese from stealing the data from um um the government organization that held all our clearances um, can't think of it, the name of it right now. But yeah, uh, I, I lost data, some some level of data, like my name and maybe an encrypted password. But in, in multiple uh, life insurance and healthcare, right? Uh, Target, Home Depot, I was part of those. So yeah, um, the the um, and I've worked quite a bit like the company I used to, I belong to now used to be part of Raytheon. So we're very involved in protecting, right? Of course, Raytheon, you know, makes aircraft parts, make radars, makes missiles uh, down in Tucson, stuff like that. So a lot of very worried about intellectual property leaving, right? And becoming part of some joint strike fighter for the Chinese and things like that, their version of the F-35. So um, it, is a, it is a real threat. Um, most people aren't, most everyday people <laughs> like you and I aren't targets of the Chinese uh, unless you've got a clearance or something like that, something they deem valuable, right? If you're a Joe homeowner and you're just living your life and, and maybe even disparage China now and again, the cost would be too much to attack you versus something else they could do for higher benefit. Um, a lot of people don't realize, but hackers weigh the cost benefit of what they're going to do. That's why they pick on Citibank. That's why they pick on the U.S. government or intellectual property that they can resell. Uh, some people steal passwords and names because if they steal, they know if they steal a million of them that there's going to be a thousand or maybe two thousand of those that are just nonsense and easy to crack, right? And they can sell those. So um, 
Yeah, the, the threat is real. And um, I think right now what we're seeing is that Russia is engaged in looking at Ukraine. And that's number one. They, um, it's surprising how, how little EW, electronic warfare, uh, they've done. Their hacking is on the crease. We see propaganda actually from both sides, right? Ukraine is not talking about their losses. And of course, you know, sometimes the footage looks suspect when, you know, all, the Russian plane goes by, but the, the missile fires out of the trees somehow. Um, oh, you saw you that know, one so too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're both playing, they're both playing that side. Disinformation, you know, not only about tro- where troops are, but also losses and other things like that. They've got to, they're playing to the home, you know, the home message. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're, that General Garazimov, even though he's been, quote, laid off or dismissed, doesn't mean that his cronies in Fuzzy Bear and the other hacking squads that they've paid over the years to do things for him aren't still out there. Uh, doing recon, collecting information, looking how to do the next solar winds attack, and Iran, North Korea, um, China—you know—they're all doing the same, right? We're we're the richest, we're the best target for defense, intellectual property, right? Uh, we run the financial markets. You know, the dollar is the basis of the world economy, things like that. So they're always, always hunting out there. There's a couple of good friends I've got between Twitter and the and the community who are threat specialists, and they're busy 24/7, right? They've got to have they they rotate their crews much like people do in a security operations center, like we would on a you know in a talk or in a submarine watch things like that because the threat is just so high, and that's from the outside. Much less uh, one of the things I focus on is also insider threat. So now you've got people that that think they're getting fired or disgruntled or they they just happen to be, you know, uh, not not so much an agent or maybe a Snowden, but somebody who would just thinks it's okay to take like take your whole customer database with them when they go to the next company, things like that. So lots of lots of it is an opportunity, unconstrained and target rich environment when you're talking about cyber nowadays. What about cyber warfare? Is that the next area of warfare that we're going to go into? We've seen, you know, with the GWAT and the global war on terror, um, is cyber warfare the next thing that we will be looking at heavily? I mean, you're already talking about drones, you're talking about uh, EMPs, all those kind of things. Is that what we're looking at next? And those are just the physical manifestations, right? Uh, A neutron bomb, an EMP, certainly drones, unmanned drones, drones that swarm, right? Um, so those, those technologies are all out there. But it really, it's, it's an internet connection and then uh, a lapse in security on your side and somebody's placing what we call advanced persistent threat into your environment. And that's, that's the code that sits there quietly and waits for some period of time, then pokes its head out, sees if it can beacon out, you know, starts to move around what we call laterally, look for other places to infect. And yeah, it's a real thing. Um, There are several organizations I know that completely just have given up on the game of trying to stop the bad guys from getting in. What they do is they stop them from reporting home. 
So if your code gets in, we'll find you eventually. But if you can't call home, if you can't exfil my data, so it's a little bit different mindset we're seeing nowadays, uh, just because the problem is so big that you can't, it's hard, hard to do that. And companies like uh, Mandiant that you hear in the news, right, that end up helping uh, customers like, like Solar Winds after the big attack and stuff like that, uh, they're experts at hunting down these advanced persistent threats, but that takes time, right? And the time that that's happening, when they realize they've been, um, you know, they get an indication of, or a warning of, 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 oh, they're looking at us, they see us now, that's when they start dumping data and things like that. So it's a real cat and mouse game, uh, a very exciting one, and a great place, um, I think, uh, for, for young people, for people uh, with law enforcement experience and other things like that to get into as and maybe a second career, you know, after after serving, serving with the badge and things like that. And very honorably, there's there's uh, the cyber world and, and that intelligence. Right. It takes that kind of mindset. It takes a people person. It takes somebody who can think, you know, um, a little bit differently than than, you know, somebody who's teaching at the junior college or or, you know, University of Maryland. So it's an exciting place to be. And I'm my 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 gravitation over this way from from radios <laughs> was just my interest in in computers and what are they all about? And, you know, how they're going to work and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's a very it's a very cool, but very scary place, like you were pointing out that with the threat. So if we can circle back around to the White House, then when you say that mm -hmm. about the technology, when you start to work in the White House, there, I'm sure there's technology that no one knew about back then in the White House. Of course there is, just like there is today. But you're talking about no computers. Uh, you're talking about landlines on the phones to each other, all these different things. Um did it seem to move at almost a slower pace because not, I, I don't want to say a slower pace, but did it seem to be more difficult to get messages through to uh, get important documents and things like that? Because now you can take a picture with your phone and send it out. Did it seem a yeah, different time yeah. back then? Oh yeah. So I remember when it would take eight of us to unload the encrypted fax machine off the back of the like, you know, Hertz or, or, you know, truck, Penske truck. I mean, the thing was huge, right? We were so, I mean, encryption wasn't, you know, the, the old, the old fax machines, actually, you put your paper on the drum and then it was almost like a stylus went across, like it was a cylinder, you know, phonograph or something like that. So yeah, that technology's exploded, but in the early days, we relied a lot on physical security was was the cabling you know in in a housing in a secure housing cemented in place those kind of things and encryption and then with the explosion of the internet and things like that um, the internet is built on a protocol that is actually multi-point to point for resiliency so the internet was originally built to design the arpanet was designed to build uh to survive nuclear war by having nodes that could, if I can't go this way, I'll communicate over this way, you know, sort of like we do with our radios and pointing antennas, right? And uh, back in the day. So um, as that exploded, we were right, we were behind <laughs> right from the start trying to catch up. And in the government, 
we didn't rush into some of those new technologies. Uh, maybe the people up at the Ford at NSA or somebody at Langley or somebody was looking at those and certainly DARPA and the scientists knew about them. But taking that from idea stage via the government idea stage into on the ground and usable was a lot longer process than it is now. And nowadays, even the CIA has its own um, venture capital fund called Incutel. So if it sees a good idea, it can rapidly bring it in and make it make it uh, possibly you know a viable product much quicker than in the old days you know when I started. Um, I think we also saw that in the joint IED defeat right during during the GWAT when we were trying to figure out how do we defeat all these IEDs. So, well, you know that brings up an interesting topic when when you talk about how big it was and then how much when technology came, do you think that it wasn't accepted or indoctrinated or however you want to say it because of fear or because of bureaucracy? <laughs> uh, well, a good combination. I think a, a combination of both. Well, bureaucracy, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, even in the, the 90s, the, the government just didn't move fast. It was not first mover in anything other than Titan missile, you know, Minuteman missile, something esoteric like that, right? Um, maybe an airplane design out of the skunk works, right? Um, but uh, um, over time, I think what, what you've seen is that much more acceptance, right? We use, it would have been about 87 when I was uh, assigned to Central Command. And I remember we got the first Cisco routers in. Well, now you can have a Cisco in your house. It's your like wireless router, right? But it was this big box, right? The same with the first computers we called 186s were as big as the tabletop. And it just had a little board in there, you know, trying to breathe and, and do something. So um, the, the, the pace of change, like I say, like from the 60s up to where we are today, has been so rapid that oftentimes... At, in, at the pace of government with government contracting and awarding, you know, an initial buy and then a follow on buy and engineering and all these kind of things have made things much harder to, to bring into the field. Um, the first time I saw something, I, I wasn't even in the military yet, but I have um, um, friends um, and a couple of friends of my father who were like on the Sante prison raid and they before, they were having trouble shooting at night, hitting the targets, just normal stuff. And somebody found that site, almost like that red dot site in the Sears catalog, and they just went out and bought it. And it improved everybody's shooting. And I, I'm ta you're talking about Sergeant Major Jacob Venko and Mastin and all these guys who were just super experts, you know, but it was just the normal, how, how, do, you, how do you shoot over iron sights at night, right, when you can't see your, you know, things like that. And so they just went outside the system and got it done. And um, there's been times when that's worked really well, but the government just has this friction against that. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, we got to study it. We got to make sure it's legal by contracting and blah, blah, blah. When guess what? You need a new, you need a new aircraft, you know, to, to fly some sensors over an area. Just go buy yourself a Cessna, pack them on, get the job done. Right. And, and that's what I like. That's what I like. And that what drew me to special forces was that idea. We're going to do it and we're going to do it now. 
we had a little bit of that in the Secret Service. Uh, we would get the latest stuff uh, out of Motorola at White House Com, right? We, and, and GE back in the day radios. Um, and uh, but even the even the Secret Service was very much a legacy. We do it this way because this is the way we've done it. Kind of kind of organization. It wasn't until I got in with the crazy people, you know, the snake eaters, that they were just like, if I've got an extra dollar, I'm going to go buy this thing. I saw it in a commercial market. It's going to work, you know, and, and we would test it out in real life. So. So as White House Communications, what presidents are you under there? <laughs> so um, in 1973, I got to Washington, D.C., and my sponsor drives me in from what we call the south side of the Beltway, where 95 reaches the 495 Beltway, if you know that area a little bit. And he drives me around uh, uh, sort of counterclockwise over into Anacostia, and we come down Pennsylvania. And I remember going by this building. And he says, you know what that is? And I said, is that the Watergate? And he's like, yeah, don't go there. <laughs> and I said, okay, I gotcha. Because, you know, Nixon's <laughs> in trouble right here. And it turned out, Two weeks after I got there, hopefully it wasn't because I got there, he, he finally decided to leave, but President Nixon resigned two weeks after I got to D.C. And my first duty station was in Georgetown um, in um, civilian clothes, long hair in Georgetown, which was this party neighborhood um, of uh, D.C., right across from Virginia there and, and Arlington National Cemetery. And... Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. I couldn't go to the uh, to the Hojos or whatever the the the, the Johnsons, the the cafe Howard across Johnsons. from the Howard Johnsons. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that that was an eye opener. And uh, uh, but it was a great time. After that episode, it was a great time to be there because we had President Ford. Uh, we had one VP, then we had another VP, and Rockefeller became the VP. Very nice, gracious man. Uh, Kissinger was one of our protectees. There was no State Department protectee, you know, division at the time. There was the uh, regional security officers at the embassies, but not a diplomatic security team uh, at the time. So it's a lot of fun travel back in those days. And that's all still White House communications, right? Because th your story is it was a little confusing to me because those lines blur so much because you're working with secret service the whole time. But then as jobs open up, you move out of white house communications into the secret service. And it was a, a pretty flawless transfer over except for what we'll talk about real quick. Um, they told you, you can come over to the secret service. All you got to do is pass a civil service exam. You kind of went in and blew it off Oh, I and, and we pulled another off. DLI test. <laughs> Uh, I wait. So. Oh, I might have flunked. I might have. I might have got a three on that test or something. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it was. Um, yeah, it was. It was one of those cognitive sections where, once I once I understood and went back and looked at the because there was of course there was a book about taking the test. Of course. So I flunked the test. They're like, "How'd you do that?" <laughs> and I'm like, "I don't know. Can I get another shot?" And they're like, "Sure, go take it again." So I read the book and it was like, "Oh, okay." you know, if the wheel turns this way, it does this or whatever. And, uh, I passed it, I passed it the second time and they wanted to send me into the electronic countermeasures group. And I thought skulking around at night, checking walls for bugs and stuff just doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So I got them to put me into the alarms and video. So going from electronics uh, to, to, 
you know, video cameras, alarm systems, things like that was a little easier switch uh, than, than electronic countermeasures. But it was a, it was a good time. We worked uh, at White House Com. Our duty stations were like at the White House, then across the river at Anacostia Bowling Air Force Base. Um, with the Secret Service, we were in a, a building um, that paralleled the executive office building, the old gray building next to the White House. Uh, we were just one street over from that. And uh, so, yeah, it was a it was a good time. The, the, the big difference there was worked with them all the time, but was really focused on communications at WACA in my role. And then I switched over and became a technical security specialist. I was not a badged agent. I didn't have a degree. I didn't, well, back then we didn't have um, the law enforcement school down in Georgia. Uh, uh, so my, my focus was um, alarms, video, and then I would work with the EOD teams when we go on advance. So two weeks, once again, about two weeks before the president shows up somewhere, Secret Service team goes out, intel, looking at the routes, the locations, and then we would work together to map out where we we're going to have the EOD teams and the dogs do the work of making sure the site was clear. And so. Well, some yeah. of the places you traveled with White House Communications and Secret Service, Paris, New Delhi, uh, Bangladesh, Russia, Africa, South America. I mean, you were all over the place and you were a pretty young guy. So you were getting to see the world. Uh, kind of unfold and not only the world unfold, but kind of the technology of the world unfold too, because I'm guessing at each place you went, it's a different set of troubleshooting for the area that you're in. Yeah. Um, back uh, when I was with, uh, went out in advance of Carter going to Warsaw, Poland, uh, we went in and, um, inside a, a switching room at a, a phone a phone um, company switch you have what you call horizontal patch panels and vertical and instead of being the, the the two wires for like your home line being together put into this vertical panel they were split like by four lines <laughs> they were sort of like that you know and, and solder dripping around and stuff like that and i remember one time a guy saying i'm i'm like Hey, do, do we have power here? And this technician, he took out a light bulb with two pieces of wire attached to it and stuck it in the socket and said, yes, we have power. And then we drank vodka and had salami and sandwich or something like that. But uh, yeah, it, uh, it was always interesting as, you know, coming from just a modest, you know, certainly not mid-level or anything, but a modest growing up, like say my first trip, Paris is wonderful for a day. Then we go to New Delhi. It's so interesting, right? As a kid, I grew up reading the National Geographic from my aunt and uncle. I just devour that thing. And then when we got to New Delhi to see the, the poverty and things like that was an eye opener and uh, helped me appreciate, you know, all the wonderful things we have here in this country. And, uh, you know, it just, it all it takes is a little bit of uh, traveling abroad beyond, you know, Europe and Puerto Vallarta, things like that. And, and you get an appreciation for what we have here. So, When you're traveling to all these countries, is there anything that stands out specifically to you in one of these countries where you thought, you know, like, how are we going to overcome this? Was there anything that was, was just completely 
kind of put you on your heels? Well, I, I, yeah, that, that whole episode in Bangladesh, um, where there was a very oppressive set of high level people and then just everybody else very much below subsistence, um, you know, people just left on the street who slept on the street, but ended up sleeping forever on the street, right? Just died there. Um, that, that bent my brain a bit because I was just used to people having things right in our country, you know, or having the potential to have the access and these people didn't at all. Um, I'd say, I'd say, um, you know, um, while it was very interesting, like being in Tehran and things like that, I knew, I knew firsthand what, and I saw firsthand the brutality of the Shah and the Shah's, uh, secret service because they were actually, their secret service was my bodyguard when I was in country most of the time. Um, so, uh, yeah, those kind of things were, once again, for somebody who wasn't schooled or educated, college educated, um, and had seen the world through National Geographic, those were the kind of things I'm like, how are we going to, how, how, how are we going to, why are we saddling up to some of these folks, you know, when we talk about democracy and free will and other things, and these people don't clearly have it, but we keep propping people up like, the Shah, not not that what happened after the Shah was any better at all by any means, but um, yeah, that was that was a, an eye opener. And I, having been around long enough to experience Vietnam, not have to go there, but but to experience what went on and understand the kind of people we propped up versus you know, and then we just seem to repeat it, right? Our foreign policy sort of mushy, stinky. You know, it's not real. I'm not real proud of our foreign policy most of the time. Uh, sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we do the right things. But Well, that would bring me into my next thing. As your Secret Service, you're with President Carter, and you actually, uh, one of your big things that you did was the Carter-Sadat uh, began peace accord meetings. <clears throat> now, those were the peace accord meetings, but they were done without the participation of the Palestinians, and it came under extreme scrutiny and even condemned by the United Nations. So you're there and you're seeing all this happen. And from what you just said, where you saw how we're propping up the wrong things, what are your thoughts on this going in there? Yeah, that was, um, you know, a bit of showmanship. Um, the, the, you know, everybody wanted to see some kind of peace in the Middle East, right? And so architecting whatever you could, um, you know, once again, even knowing how, how, um, you know, brutal the, the Sadat and the, his predecessors had been things like that. It was, it was, um, yeah, oddly missing some things. Uh, I was a little bit more worried at the time, uh, when he came to DC and I was on the Sadat detail and boxes with labels from all over the world started showing up in a garage and I'm supposed to check these things out. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. You know, let, let, let the first second secretary of the political affairs office open this box up this crate. I don't want to be, I don't want to be in this part of Georgetown at the well, embassy. Right. And that was one of your duties was managing the suspicious packages that came in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had one, I had one that, that, that had me pretty wound up wound up pretty tight was just a, a turned out to be a briefcase of nothing that was left in front of the 
uh, near one of the guard stations at the ellipse on the south side of the White House. So I'd had that. And then when these boxes started showing up, and then back in the day, we looked at, you know, the markers where it traveled through and things like that for indications, right? I'm also looking to see if it's if it's leaking, you know, because the simtex is oily and stuff like that. But it was, yeah, it, it, it was, uh, not, not only was it, um, like you said, a very strange political environment at that time, but then I was, I was mostly focused on self-preservation when I had to, had to do these things. <laughs> I have immense respect for anybody and everybody that's ever worked EOD. I've been to many a course, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just, I, I honor the people in that profession. It, it's, it's amazing that they do that day in and day out. With that though, you also doing that when you were with secret service, uh, from what I understood, your job was kind of alarms and cameras, uh, presidents, vice mm -hmm. presidents. Um, I think even like presidential candidates and stuff, you had to keep eye over them. The The question that I have about that, though, is back at that time, what kind of technology are we really talking about? I mean, that's watching these. I, I know that we had cameras at a time, but they had to be rudimentary cameras. I mean. Oh, right. They did not know. They did not have motion detectors. We had um, uh, what we would call you know, radar, Doppler radar detectors, but we didn't have the combination Doppler radar infrared, right, <laughs> detectors, so that you, you know, because with, with Doppler, you can, you can infiltrate, you can just be slow if there's no camera, you're not going to set off the Doppler, and if the temperature is not right, you know, then you're not going to set off the IR, things like that. A lot of stuff, a lot of the advanced stuff I actually learned later when I worked with DOE and, and all the smart people at Sandia, started saying there's all these holes in our right because we had we had we had things in the fence you know and or you know we had ears in the sky different things like that but there were still you could still defeat those things if if you were in a nice visual blind spot so yeah it was uh it was um what we were told to put in once again secret service very much at, at the time and it's probably changed since then but was very much, this is the way we do it. We're going to do it anyway, you know, this way, um, right? I got in a big fight uh, with the presidential detail. Uh, Carter was coming to a steel mill that, that did wire, steel wire up in New Jersey. And they're like, where's the dogs? And I'm like, I didn't order the dogs. I haven't brought the dogs up from DC. And they're like, why not? We always do it. It's the president. You got to do that. I'm like, I'm not putting those poor German shepherds down on the 130 degree steel mill floor, you know, unless you want a $45,000 dog to sniff out some 680 to the snout, you know? So, um, yeah, those are so, some of the reasons why I left. Um, and, and later on, I had to admit, I am sort of a new shiny thing, if it makes sense. And why aren't we using the latest technology and things like that? So I was, I was not exactly compatible with the, um, we do it that way because we've always done it that way kind of mindset. Um, um, so that's some of the reason why I parted ways with the Secret Service. But uh, once again, another group of amazing people, 
most of the time they pay their bills. Most of the time they don't leave bullets around in hotel rooms and things like that, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, good people. With the secret service, the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about, you also did sport for the candidates during the 1980 presidential election. Um, Mm -hmm. and so at this time we're looking at Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, uh, John Anderson and Ed Clark. When you're coming into this, because we're at kind of a, I don't want to say a boiling point in America, but there was a real shift once Reagan took over, uh, you would agree. Like when we hit the 80s and, and it mm-hmm. was kind of the age of excess and the Star Wars program and all these kind of things. Are you still looking at technology and still looking at protecting these guys with with old things? Or are you starting to see, all right, we're headed kind of to the future? I know that you said that they're very... We've always done this before, but are you seeing any kind of change going into the 80s and the presidential elections and kind of a switch and just a, a thought over the entire United States? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know what? Um, being able to look at it back in and talk to friends and things like that, I was I was very happy. Like um, the the when I was when I was at the White House the alarm system display was was red green yellow board you know down in the basement for the uniformed officers it was very very current loop it was just an electric loop that you know if it was at a certain voltage it was good if not if if the line was broken or the magnet was away from the sensor you know then then it give you a different indication so it was very analog um and uh as I was leaving, they were trying to do a project with IBM. It didn't work out. But then once again, they, they went back after that and said, okay, let's relook at this and, and go forward. And uh, a lot of the technology advancements, once again, were in electronic warfare back then, right? Making sure the room is clean, uh, encrypted phone systems, uh, essentially tents that you could put inside rooms, right? To, to, to have a secure conversation right and not worry about what's going on in the window or what's implanted in the room or what's inside the the you know the lamp on side of the desk desk things like that so yeah there was a lot of it there was there was continuous advancement like that there were just some of those like say when i left there were some of those things that it's like well let's use the dogs when it's smart to use them not when just not all the time right let's use them when it makes sense and adds value um but uh yeah, the Secret Service has 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 always had a good connection to DARPA and uh, John Hopkins and other places for technology. So it it never really slowed down. It was just a mindset, I think, and I think it picked up with Reagan. You're right. Well, with the exception of with the exception of when it got shot. Okay, and, I will and, say, and I might get, you know, I might get blasted by some folks about this. Okay, but the president had come out that door. I don't know how many times, right? Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, that was the only way out and blah, 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 right? But when you do, you know, that's that's how the CIA uh, station chief, you know, got swiped in Europe. And it, it was just one of those things that I, I felt for all my friends that were there and Jerry Parr, the lead agent, you know, uh, he saved the president's life by getting to the hospital quickly. 
even though it was a very small caliber wound, things like that. But right, those are the those are the kind of things when you're in a high threat environment. You know, we I think we all know you just don't go in and out the same door every day all the time that way, right? That is not a, the only way into the Shoreham or out of the Shoreham Americana. So, yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to point out right before you said that. And I think that's a great point that you make. In everything that you say about that, they could develop a tent that would go in a room so you could have a secure conversation. They swept for bugs to make sure no one was listening. Encrypted phones. It seems more, and of course information is power. I get that. But it seemed the security focus was more on information and not on the principal target. Hmm. Yeah. I think, I think you can, uh, you know, when you've been to the Omni Shoreham as an agency, probably 100, 150 times, right, you could get lulled into, we got this, right? We know this. We know this entrance. We know the back route to here. We know that Billy Graham is going to stop and give him a hug and say a word, things like this, right? All the standard things that are going to happen. And it only takes one bad actor to s- decide that I'm, I'm going to put a variable into that equation right and then it's not what it was so uh, yeah uh, so so would you agree with that point or or disagree with it that that there was more effort put into the the technology of information than that of actual like you said you know with the cameras there's no doppler or there's doppler but no heat sensors or things like that what's your I, thoughts I see on what you, i see what you're saying yeah i see what you're saying and i think i think it um you know, it takes a very smart director of the Secret Service to keep both those things on the rise, right? And, and moving up and forward versus one being, I think we might have had some technology shuffles that that were bright, shiny things back in those days, right? Not shuffles, but advances that that then became the thing that we did. And maybe it was in relationship to a specific threat and it helped, you know, we felt good, right? We had confirmation bias. We'd done a good thing, right? And then you, 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 you're not thinking about other ways to do the other phys- more physical side of the job. So that's an interesting take. I like that. I like that. So I think that all that changed, though, and this is kind of the last part. We're going to wrap up the Secret Service. But I think a lot of that kind of thinking, that, that mentality of, well, it worked in the past, it'll work now, I think a lot of that, just as in military and law enforcement and intelligence, a lot of it changed on 9-11. A lot of that thinking changed on 9-11. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, hindsight, right, is twenty twenty. Absolutely. And, right. All the, all the warnings and indications that, you know, Ada and his friend coming across from Canada with, crop duster manuals and and you know aircraft instructions and things like that so yeah it and even though we did have a no watch list right at that time i mean we were aggressively going after the people that had bombed our embassies and other things like that so but you know we were we were in a heightened state um i think what we were in was a heightened state where just like remember the stories of grenada and 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 the, the the folklore about the guy using his AT&T card to call in, you know, artillery fire, things like that. Right. That we had really good people doing really good things in really sort of rigid silos. And we didn't have that communications cross connection. 
I remember what a hassle it was when they first, after 9-11, built the first no-fly list. And they took like 15 of them and went, poo, and threw them together, right? And then all of a sudden, your neighbor can't fly because he's got the same name as, you know, you know, a guy that spent 10 years, you know, in Rik- whatever, Rikers, whatever. So, um, but I think, I think it, um, that, that was, there were some, some indications that should have bubbled up, but there was also that, that lack of sharing, right? Because as much as we talked about it, we really weren't like NTCT integrated, right? At the National Counterterrorism Threat Center and things like that. Uh, we were more integrated and we were at least thinking about combined arms and other things in the military, uh, certainly, uh, you know, in the Navy, in the Army and the Air Force, for example, how are we going to fight together, right? So there's no fratricide or other things or we make you best uses of the force. But in the intelligence world, I think we were siloed, uh, you know, 16, 17 intelligence organizations doing their thing, trying to hold on to their budget, some other things like that. So. Well, I think the good thing that changed about it, and I'm speaking from a law enforcement perspective, is I think that a lot of change that happened, in, and I, I guess you could transfer it over in, into intelligence and communications and stuff, is I think at that time they kind of opened up the box a little and started letting the guys on the ground think more openly about how to solve problems. It wasn't always just a guy sitting back in an office saying, this is how we should do this. It's guys that are actually on the ground problem solving and them taking their ideas and letting them kind of run with it. Exactly. I think that we'd, uh, we'd paid lip service to that before decentralized control and things like that. But the, the reality of that is uh, like we saw in the GWAT, you've got an E5 there with a fire team in a, in a, in a village and, you know, and he's got those life and death, you know, those people's life and death in his hand. And, and he's making, decisions that are actually of strategic value because if, if he treats him nice and, and, you know, trust, but verify those kind of things, then, then maybe he gets a bit of a partner in his, in his fight in this one little area, so, you know, more strategic, even down at that, like you say, at that squad leader level, that, that patrolman on, on the street, right. Um, that you don't have to call to the, to your Sergeant, you know, on, on your, you know, your squad Sergeant, things like that. So, yeah, um, I think we part of that was because we figured out finally, not figured out, we admitted that we couldn't control the breadth of this, that you can't do it without decentralized control, right? I can't imagine, and, and we were, uh, as growing up, we were good friends with the, the, the local Humboldt County Sheriff, and uh, he, he was a huge man. He carried a 44 Magnum Blackhawk on his hip. He was just a big guy. He wasn't like cowboy or trying to be, you know, some kind of hero or anything, but I can remember him because I remember him mostly because he had a really cute daughter, but <laughs> he, uh, he said that you've got to be able to trust your people to do their job. You can't do it. You know, if you get in the army and you're in charge of people, Steve, you cannot do everything for them, right? You've got to train them and let them get out there and do the job themselves because they'll be the ones that know the community the best. They'll know what's going on in the community the best. First, not not you sitting behind the desk, not the desk sergeant, you know, those kind of things. So. And and I think another part of that is is we we always look to wisdom only came from the older. And I think there was a switch to 
with that sergeant in 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 police patrol or that sergeant of the fire team, we're looking at a guy that's making huge decisions that's 24, 25, 26 years old and is making these gigantic decisions, but they were given the leeway to do it without the constant questioning. Now, I could say in, in the past couple of years, we might have been making kind of a, a shift back in the wrong direction because we're starting mm-hmm. to question a lot of things. And once again, I'm speaking strictly from a law enforcement perspective, but I, I think that we've seen where, well, maybe you can't make your own decisions and we need to help you along the way. But I think that so much opened up in, in law enforcement, in the intelligence community, and all those things when we started, like you said, decentralizing and letting everyone have their input into the solution to the problem. Right. I, I was lucky. I was taught, you know, you're, you're not always going to be the smartest guy in the room. More than likely not. If you're really lucky, you're going to command a group of people that have different skills, better skills in some ways than you are, things like that. Um, and that that if you can accept that as a leader, give them give them training and guardrails, then you know it, it makes a big difference. And I think I think that's the um, the big thing for me is 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 training training and then the guardrails about the job. If you've got a question, feel free to ask. You know those kind of things. That's how you that's how you push leadership down and out and give people the chance to grow. Right. So. Well, as you leave Secret Service, you kind of get back into the world. I, I said that this is where you kind of decided that that you wanted some more adventure in your life, and you went over, earned your Green Beret, and then were assigned to counter-narcotics. Um, one thing that I want to point out that I thought was funny, you tried to be a medic in Special Forces. You, you tried to get over on the system and become a medic, and they told you, no, you know way too much about communications. You are a commo sergeant. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. I thought, um, you know, there for a little while, they let me go to 91 Band-Aid school. They called it back then at, at Fort, Fort uh, Sam. And uh, uh, yeah, I had, uh, you know, I was had like, I was coming up on my two years in uh, junior college and thinking about the nursing thing, because I got my Green Beret through the National Guard. And you go through the same training. Um, and you're, you're held to the same standards. You're, you're just, you know, a part-timer, not, not a full-timer at, at Fort Bragg or Fort Campbell, that kind of thing. So, um, uh, a lot of times the only thing we lacked, um, uh, between us and an active duty, uh, special forces team was gear, right? We didn't have the latest rifle. We didn't have the latest camo gear, but actually when I got to Maryland, uh, we had a, like a million dollar budget for stuff. And so, <laughs> Uh, we did have some really good stuff, but, um, yeah, that, uh, that, that, um, push down into, um, South America from, from, cause when I originally started, right. And, and we, and when I started in the army, right, it was, it was the cold war and the big, you know, the big red motorized, uh, rifle regiments and divisions are going to come through the fold of gap and things like that. I mean, I remember my first special wars forces war plan um, when there were still four, <clears throat> there used to be two reserve groups and two national guard groups. And so the 11th was headquartered out of Fort Meade and it was, you know, a whole, it was the backup to 10th group in Europe. And um, 
my first war plan was like fly in over the, you know, the Barents Sea, drop down and hide in the woods for like six months and wait to see if the backfire bombers come to America, you know, things like that. Stupid stuff. Um, attack the Polish high command. They're just some crazy stuff, but, um, well, that's so the kind, Cold of, War kind, of, kind of the height of the Cold War when you earn your green Oh, absolutely. Grade, all yeah. that. All that. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I didn't mention this before, but we even had a manual. I wish I could find it. There was a task, right? We have all these tasks. You remember them in the Army that, you know, you had the manual for E6s, E7s, E5s, and they give you all your standards and the tasks you had to be able to perform for your MOS. Well, one of ours in Special Forces was called prepare for friendly nuclear fire and i'm like dude they got to be kidding me because i don't think there's anything friendly about nuclear <laughs> nuclear <laughs> detonation um but uh yeah the cold war switching from that to southern command and the focus on on uh counter narcotics that kind of thing uh was an was an interesting shift in one of course as you know now i've use that for a basis of my first book. Right. So, um, a lot of exciting things there for a while in the, uh, before the GWAT, the national guard, you know, with Epic DEA Epic down there at El Paso on the border, uh, we would do these missions, uh, and DEA would pay for everything that the last one I was on, they paid for a C5A, we put two helicopters in it, two teams, and flew from um, we flew from Florida out to California, and um, did a did our recon training. In, and the idea was, if we saw anything, we'd report it back to DEA. And they gave us all these ammo. They gave us uh, cars and rental cars and vehicles and stuff like that. And and it was very good training and and we did find some things nothing that turned out to be uh, interesting enough to you know to prosecute that kind of stuff but um those were really good training missions and the start of my interest in, in counter narcotics and certainly the the scourge of the cartels so well you were going california florida and then at this time was operation snowcap happening yes and um so uh, I had a good had a good friend in Snowcap, and his brother was on my team. His brother was my weapons junior weapons sergeant on a team, um, and so he was a DEA Snowcap agent. And I know, I'm not sure if many of your uh, listeners remember, but um, at one point there was a plane that went down in Peru, and it had a female Snowcap operator on it from. I think she was like from Arlington, Virginia, Northern Virginia, that area. And he was on the plane with her and they, uh, they figured out it was, you know, bad air, air currents in the Peruvian mountains, that kind of thing. It wasn't a show the fire missile or anything like that, but, uh, yeah, we lost, we lost him that day. Um, so it, it the snow cap was, snow cap was a real thing. Uh, both these folks were like, Ranger infantry trained and trained and things. She wasn't ranger trained. They didn't let women do that back then. Uh, but she had a lot of experience and and they were right in the thick of it, snow cap right. Uh, uh, getting in there in the middle of the gorillas and things like that and sort of playing the middle between the gorillas and the and the narcos and things like that. So 
So with you going California, Florida, uh, I think you went to Central and South America too, correct? In, in some right. of these Panama, operations. Colombia, yep. So as you're yeah. working these, you're you're kind of at because we're talking what 88, 89 for you because Green Bay in eighty six, so eighty seven maybe. Yeah, eighty. Yeah, there, there was, you know, I was still holding that hope hope out to be a medic. So it was a couple of years before I got into the, <laughs> got down range. Yeah. So so certainly in the nineties to two thousands time frame. And, okay, so um, you're coming yeah. in at the end of the cocaine, you know, cocaine cowboys and stuff, because you're talking, you know, 86 and stuff, but you're you're coming in at the end of that. But now you've got, coming into the 90s, the 2000s, you have the Mexican cartels starting to be very powerful over the South American cartels. Uh, by this time, um, you know, the things with Escobar have happened. You have El Chapo coming into play. You have all of these Mexican special forces that are changing over and going to work for the cartels. So you're coming up against a very well-armed force and a very well-organized force. So as you come into it, what do you see from beginning until end? What are the changes that you see go on during these uh, operations? the changes yeah um i think i think we we certainly helped improve because like uh there were several times um the the active duty seventh group guys would be training the officers we'd be training the ncos at the lancero school in Calamari in colombia that's like their ranger school lancero and i think i think we both did a good job in them of of bringing them up um, into uh, a higher state of combat effectiveness because they just sort of like to walk around in the woods, see what they could find. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I think that was very effective. Um, the, uh, uh, right, the South, Southcom guys, they would, they would stay down for six, eight months at a time, things like that. Uh, you know, we, we would go in for a month and come out and rotate and some, uh, you know, I was, I was at a school one time when, when my team didn't go to Columbia, went to Ecuador and, and trained with that special forces, uh, unit there. But, um, yeah, the, the, um, I think it was the improvement in, in, in tactics. Um, they spent a lot of time in the field where, you know, we had police, right. The police in Bogota and other things like that were right. Pressing the flesh right in the middle of some really ugly urban terrain. And uh, I think uh, we did a really good job, right? Because we had a permissive air environment. Nobody was firing a stinger at us. Nobody was firing an igla S at us and things like that for the equivalent back in those days at what we were doing from an ELINT, right? And an electronic warfare collection standpoint, you know, essentially a South American version of guardrail going back and forth you know, flying over, over, uh, uh, Bogota and other places like that. Um, the, uh, yeah, when they started to lose influence and, and El Padrino, you know, went to jail and then, and El Chapo started coming up, uh, you know, they were still making a lot of money. They just weren't, they just weren't shipping straight through. And, uh, <coughs> Shorty, I, I, I'm still amazed by all that he, uh, 
made happen. Um, the fact that, yeah, like I, I look at a picture nowadays of Los Zetos and stuff like that. And I think, man, they got better stuff than we had, you know, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's scary what they do downing helicopters and it's, you know, uh, you know, put punching two Mexican Marine helicopters out of the sky, things like that. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I write about it now. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty glad that I'm not in that fight anymore, that younger people are, are doing that. And the Mexicans have sort of stood up, but. Well, let me ask you, did you see a change in violence? Um, as you first started in California, in Mexico, South America, because like you said, it was a lot of overwatch and things like that. But you had to have seen in the 90s, especially going into the 2000s, you had to see the violence kind of just kick up exponentially. Oh, I absolutely. I see what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, the, um, they, <laughs> they just didn't care. They didn't care who you were. You know, several times, like we saw the Mexican government push back and and take take a spanking and then sort of just like you know throw some words up and put them in the paper and and stay to the side right stay out of the way um to the point now where what is i mean the the drug market is at 60 70 percent of the mexican economy now right um and i think certainly <clears throat> we saw a lot of that infiltrate north of the border right into our space right and police on the street you know see that not only just at the border but um you know different groups that around the united states and and um they're just brazen and and feel like they can do whatever they want to do right and and we keep putting them away right and we've got hit reports and other things like that and it's all good and we've got a great i think a good relationship with it you know, FBI and DEA and other people like that. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, we don't, we, you know, how fickle our, our, our newscasting and stuff is, right? So the, the, the pony of the moment is Ukraine, but that doesn't stop what goes on every day. That doesn't stop the shootings and, and the other things that go on every day and the brazen attacks that, that the cartels make. And it doesn't matter if you're in, you know, on the border or if you're in Minneapolis, right? It uh, just anywhere and everywhere. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. And 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 like you said, as as it goes up, you have the Haidas, you have Epic down there, you have Border Patrol and Customs working, and there's so many different things that we're throwing at it. Yet it seems like the more it comes into the United States because we have cut back very much on our drug enforcement laws in the United States. Um, right. They've found, you know, we've, we've uh, legitimized and, and even made, you know, marijuana where first it started medicinal. Now it's for a uh, general purpose and things like that. We're changing a lot of the laws and we're going from drugs are bad when you started in the eighties and, and crack is whack and all those, you know, stupid sayings that they made, but we've almost turned it into where it's a victim anymore. It's not that these cartels are inflicting punishment and death and dismemberment and all these things. Now it is 
well, this is a problem. We have to face it as a mental health problem or in a totally different way. And we've started to kind of lose uh, sight of what that war on drugs is. We're trying to stop them from coming into the United States. And I, I think that there's been drastic changes since you were working in it. Absolutely. And look at all the money and time we spent in prosecuting you know, people for opioids and companies for opioids, right? That's an easy win. They're a captive U.S. company. You know, we can get after them, right? Um, look at look at what we did in Afghanistan with heroin, right? And, and the opium production there. You know, we spent a billion dollars there and nothing's changed, right? We interrupted their flow occasionally from time to time. But um, there was very few people, right? Our, our ground commanders were saying, hey, I'm, I'm focused on counterinsurgency, right? I'm focused on ISIS and the Taliban. You know, somebody else is going to have to go after, you know, the drugs and things like that. So we we tend to we tend to spend money and we've spent a lot of money, but we've spent a lot of money and demand's not gone anywhere. The the, the flow has not gone anywhere. Right. It's, uh, you know, other than from episodic dents that we put in the flow or things like that. Right. The math is too stupid to to stop. Right. We can, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and so that that was what I really wanted to talk about with you doing that yeah. at that time, because that was such a, you know, a intensive time of going after drugs and Operation Snowcap and all these kind of things. And of course, things shifted uh, with just geopolitics in the world. And and things have changed. Like you said, we have the Ukraine that we're worrying about now. We have China. We have all these different things. At some point, though, we have to come back because I think if it gets too powerful, if that wave gets too big, it's going to be hard to stop. You're not going to have any breakers on the beach for it, and it's going to be overwhelming. Yeah, I I, I agree 100%. Um, and, you know, it's the, it's the death by a thousand cuts, right? And at first it's this, right? And then it's that. And then it's, you know, it's okay. It's okay to do this. Uh, but maybe we regulate it, you know, however that might happen. And so all those, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a creeping game of giving ground, right? Um, instead of saying, no, this is the line and, and we're not going to do that. And, um, you know, I, there's, there's a whole section of the population that, that, you know, somebody in politics is going to worry about losing that band of the population in a vote, right? Um, and, and so not come out that strong, uh, which is unfortunate because I think it's what our children need. So, so coming off that, let's talk about your kind of last job that you did before you got into this whole author and writing thing. You became a contractor for, uh, well, not only DOD, but DOE, correct? You, you did it for both at, at certain points. Right. Yeah. After, um, yeah, so D DOE was interesting because uh, most of the laboratories, most people don't know about it, but most of the laboratories are run what they call GOCO, government-owned but contractor-operated. And it's amazing how much autonomy the contractors have. DOE has little to no say over, like, they could save so much money if they just, you know, standardized on s this one thing, for example, whether it's IT or something else or just fleet vehicles or whatever. And, and Sandia or Los Alamos could say, no, not today. Richland up in Washington is saying, nope. You know, 
So it's a very strange contractual environment. I did learn a lot, though. There are some crazy, crazy um, smart <laughs> people at Sandia Laboratories. Um, you know, uh, we used to do these things where we would, we would, in concentric circles, we'd work our way in from like outside the fence line into an organization to see where we could start pick up emanations and different things like that, zone testing. And these guys, you know, we'd, we'd have to get like right next to the building with our equipment. The Sandia guys would be having lunch in downtown St. Pete, you know, having a good time and they could pick things up. It was uh, really, really, really sort of like, you know, working with the DARPA guys. Um, so exciting. It was also interesting to note what what was um you know it was highly protected material versus not right because you're part of the nuclear weapons arsenal and plants and things like that so you know i learned a bit about the sst's and the follow-ups and you know transporting nuclear weapons and stuff um when i went full-time back over towards do dod and, and back at centcom and then special operations command when it stood up uh, you know, that was an interesting thing. CENTCOM was new and had a new region of the world, essentially, and it was interesting. But when they took when they they took what they called, if you remember, Forces Command, and then they just gave it a new name and said, now you're Special Operations Command. The command was 90 percent people without jump wings. And, you know, they didn't know a special operation from a, you know, a special meal, you know, at McDonald's. So um, that, that was pretty exciting. Yeah, early on. Um, but it was also a great time because working there at McDill Air Force Base with those two major commands, and that base is just chocker block full now of special commands, SMUs, and other things like that, right? Um, that um, That's how I was able to get us involved in South America in these counter-drug missions and with DEA and things like that because they were sort of up on the, up on the ops board and I could walk in and go, hey, you know, I got a little National Guard group up the road here in Florida. I'll help you out with that. And uh, they'd be happy for the help because at that point, the, 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 the traditional, the, the active duty teams were pretty full of, you know, full schedule, right? Whether it was training down in South America or counterinsurgency or training in Jordan and Egypt or other things like that. So a lot of stuff going on in the world at that point. So. Uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting. The big thing that I want to point out with you being the contractor for DOD, though, you said that you were creating and developing software that enabled uh, information sharing between war fighters in the intelligence community. Now, mm -hmm. we talked about this earlier that in 9-11, kind of everything changed. And once again, it kind of decentralized everything. And that's exactly the kind of information system that you were doing was being able to take that real-world um, tactile information that was very much useful and could be used to knock down high-value targets and put them into uh, practice. The question that I, I say all that to say this, looking back at the very beginning when your White House communications and, and when you move through all these years, 70s, 80s, 90s, and you see this, this is kind of the fruition of what you had been, I guess, dreaming of the whole time with the way these information systems are working now, correct? Oh, absolutely. And now we use terms like 
sensor to shooter, right? So, so I could be connected, you know, let's use an old bird. I could be connected and, and getting, or my JTAC could be connected to the predator and we've got a feed. We see what the, we see what the predator feeds, what the, what the command team all the way back in, in, you know, North of Las Vegas sees, right. And, um, we're seeing that and it's like, yeah, put some, put some badness on this guy here, you know, or, or this column of whatever. And, and so that sensor to shooter is one part of it. Uh, Cause it, I joke nowadays, right. We plan a war with PowerPoint and then we go to war with video, right. From, from a drone, just sort of like we see the Ukrainians, you know, like yeehaws, let's send, send something like a hellfire down the throat. But um uh, between that, the guardrail and stuff. So we had all this stuff that would just sort of get collected up in intelligence and then have to get processed. Well, a lot of that stuff, as you well know, we don't need to process it. We just need to see it, especially video now and high definition video or infrared. All you got to do is show it to me. I know, I know that's a T-72, you know, sunk down in, in the dirt, but I could see his turret glow and I could punch him out, you know, from two miles away with no, I don't have to worry about getting engaged, things like that. So getting that kind of data down, once again, it's for me, it's all about the guy on the, the boots on the ground, whether it's a, a lieutenant or a E5, if he's got the data that he needs and he can see his battlefield in front of him, that's that, that lifts that fog of war a little bit that helps him understand the commander's intent. Uh, Right. Um, you know, in, in the case of the GWAP, we had a permissive error environment, right? Really, yeah, you got you got RPGs and discus shooting at you occasionally and things like that, but it's not like not like Ukraine, um, you know, where you got Igla S and Stingers and stuff, and then the other bigger missiles. But moving that data down because everything that Intel collects only has one value. And and it may have multiple people it has value to. But it's, you know, it's the guy at the boots on the ground, right? It's the guy in the airplane, you know, in a, in a three-ship formation that needs that data. Intel doesn't need to keep it. And during the first Gulf War, we had to take data. We would collect all this just petabytes of data and send it back to NSA, to other places, and get it processed to have it come back. seven. It had to go 7,000 miles to, to get back to mainland United States, get processed, over the course of how many hours, whatever, days, weeks sometimes, to come back as a target package or something else, right? Why not keep it right there where you need it, right in right in theater? Like, right, if you've got if you've got the capability to have a drone over a SWAT team on a house and you can see infrared at night, right, versus having that picture go back, you know, all the way to downtown LAD PD headquarters or something, it's just that much more value. Uh, for everybody and it saves lives it's actionable intel actionable intel and it can save your teams and and the place that you're assaulting it can save lives and so it, it has real value so uh, our systems allow you from one terminal to connect to multiple connections to pull data in and do that um, synthesis right and then to ship it out and share it with people so um, that you know, sometimes, uh, for example, we during the GWAT, you know, in U in UCOM, we had we had Danish partners, we had Polish partners, we had Ukrainians that came and helped us fight the GWAT, right? And they all came with drones and different things like that, and the Turks and stuff. And so, being able to bring that all in, 
right? Even though it's different platforms and we, we trust it differently, if we can treat it, test it, and pass it on to you, um, makes a huge difference, right? You're not just running Red Route 1 by yourself in the dark, right? Uh, stuff like that. So I'm, you- I'm, I'm really happy where I'm at being able to still support law enforcement. Uh, FBI is a big user of our products. Um, and other folks like that and, and, and uh, the warfighter. Well, that's, that was the last question that I was going to ask you about your career. Is this right now uh, what you're doing, the most fulfilling part of your career, you think? I think so. I have the most, most impact um, that I could, that, that I could have. Um, I, you know, I know I impacted people's lives at different stages of my career and things like that. But where, where I'm creating product that gets used across the IC, the warfighters, law enforcement, things like that, um, uh, to include not only these information sharing systems, but systems that look for insider threat. Uh, not too long ago or late last year, we were actually able to help somebody who was considering harming themselves, right? Uh, thinking about suicide. That was a really felt good, right? Uh, it's always nice to catch the next Snowden, but if you can help somebody look at life a little bit differently and, and spend more time on a planet, I like that. I lost a friend to suicide. So that's a big one for me. So, well, I, I think it's super interesting to hear that this is the most fulfilling part of your job because of all the things you've done, all the people you've been with, all the different countries you've been to right now is what you're doing is a great final chapter in kind of that career. Uh, before you close that book and move on to the next thing that we're going to talk about, which is this writing career. Now you, you kind of uh, you, you've done it. You've already written the first and second one. The first one's getting ready to come out and you're working on the third one. Now, now the first one's called shadow tier. Um, the way it's described is a military operator and strategist who immediately suffers tragic personal loss at the hands of the Sinaloa cartel Rather than give in to the loss, Wolf goes on the offensive. I want to point out a couple things about this book that most people, you wrote this differently than most action books out today. A lot of action books and military action thrillers talk about the present time right now. You took this back to 1998, uh, Sinaloa Cartel, El Chapo. So I want to get your thoughts on it. It's called Shadow Tear. I want to get your thoughts on it, how you came up with this idea, and the process you went through to get this out there. Yeah, so um, uh, 1993, my parents were um, headed to Baja for vacation, and a truck full of drugs hit them head on. My mom ended up dying in the hospital. The federales did what they always do and just arrest everybody on site, right? And um, so I was rather pissed off at the cartel and uh, Mexican people for a little while. And it bounced around in my head. I did storyboards like a movie storyboards, you know, and looked at it that way and things like that. And finally, my wife's like, why don't you just write? So I started writing in, in uh, November of 29. Five months later, I had the initial draft done. Um, I do use El Chapo's real name. And I know he's just down the road in Florence, Colorado. I live in the Denver area. You know, uh, I'm not too worried about it. Um, yeah, but, uh, I don't think he's getting I, out of where he's at. So No, no, 
they they, they have a real fine facility there in Florence. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I thought, I mean, this man's this man's interesting, right? He had a czar. He had a czar that only thought all all of the czar his czar thought about was tunnels, right? And he was an expert at tunnels, right? Um, the uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the uh, yeah, so I set it back a little bit. Number one, because I wanted to to sort of like take every book, maybe go about three years or something like that was my initial thought. But um, it was also fun to sort of go back, you know, that far and look at the tech and stuff like that. Right. We didn't once again, we didn't have a lot of tech, the tech that we have today, you know, uh, back in uh, 98 and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, I created a fictional West Coast leader for El Chapo, Alejandro, and it was his sister who was the hair trigger, prone to violence, beautiful but crazy young lady, right? Um, and uh, when the when the when Wolf finally spends a, a little vacation time, like after 12 years of being in the military, finally spent this agrees to spend time with his parents. They're coming in this case up from Puerto Vallarta. They're driving up and, and a buddy tells him a Mexican army buddy says, Hey, you should stop at my brother's restaurant here in, uh, uh, Los Moches, uh, just out on the ocean on the Baja from that. And, um, they're just having, having, uh, lunch when, uh, a guy comes pushing the owner the owner through the middle of the restaurant and, and Wolf sees he's got an MP5 in his back and he's just sort of playing it cool until a waiter crashes into the guy with the MP5, he shoots and then Wolf and dad have got guns out and it starts off. Um, uh, but uh, it ends up being a bit of a revenge book, as you can tell. Uh, not a bit, it's a revenge book, the first one. And then uh, Lance really gets down and deep. He takes he takes his guerrilla war training, you know, across the border. Uh, doesn't really care about the border. Uh, he enlists some friends from the National Guard to help him. They go on a training mission out to Tucson, bury their stuff in a cache, and pick up some other stuff on the other side of the border. These Mexican friends left him, and and uh, they go attack a cartel logistics sort of. Uh, facility um so it uh it starts a, a a game of you know you know i hit you here you hit me back in a, in tampa things like that um and at one point there's a cartel sniper called uh the tomador right the taker of souls and uh he uh wounds wolf's girlfriend and another guy's wife or soon to be wife and and then all of a sudden the the cartel gets really tired of the whole thing and they use their political clout to get him uh classified as a terrorist uh inter international terrorist in mexico and stuff so the fbi is looking at him and everything like that and uh an old crusty colonel at the command finally says look this guy's done more damage you know in the last X months than we have an old drug war in the counter drug war and starts the unit called shadow tier. So shadow tier is, is a, is a organization that's actually built up with national and national guard and reserve people who have 
experience and unique talents um, that uh, you know often find in in active duty units because you know they tend to have military occupations, not the other commercial stuff. So it was a cathartic to write that. Well, yeah, and you know, and a lot of people would ask do your past jobs, does your past go into this? Absolutely. It goes into this. Um, I mean, especially with your family and everything like that, it happened in different ways, but yes, it was. Now when you write like that and you say a Colonel steps in and, and things like that, that sounds kind of like John Rambo's Colonel that watches over him, which as everyone knows, First Blood is a great revenge. I I think it's a revenge film or a revenge book, whatever you want to call it. Is that in the vein that you're looking in? Not not following it, but is that in the vein we're looking at? Is is a revenge like that where it's a it's a smart guy that knows what he's doing, but is doing a job that no one else will do. Yeah, and and uh, the colonel here is not not like Colonel Troutman that that he served with Lance. Uh, Colonel Nichols is somebody else. So Lance is a contractor at Special Operations Command. Now he's left active duty, sees the more money, sort of like I did and (laughs) went after the contractor spot. Um, uh, But he's in the same command and he's watching Lance and another uh, guy named Kennedy, um, you know, like not be not be around and when they're not around stuff happens across the border or things like this and you know he he's smart enough to put two he's a he's he's a marine and he's smart enough to put two and two together because he'd been he'd worked some side gigs for the agency and stuff like that so um he's able to put it together um it's just right that the the fbi can't put it together thank goodness or they would have buried him um so he's he's more of a top cover um, kind of person, sort of like John Clark, you know, okay. uh, for Rainbow Clancy-like. Six. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> you say Rainbow Six. Oh, I'm thinking what, Clear and Present Danger. Right, Clear and Present Danger. But also, it's funny because I've actually now completed since I last talked to you. I completed Book Three. Which, oh wow! Which which he actually. Um, in shadow tier, they open up a unit in the UK, AKA rainbow style. So, uh, because now, now we've gone from 98 to 2003, we've got the GWAT and we've got the Taliban making $400 million a year right off of their opium, which was a real fact. I I pulled all the facts out, right? I like to put real facts in my book, back it up with, you know, in case, in case a nerd like me looks it up, you know, but, uh, yeah. So, um, anyway, so in the, in, in the sec, in, in the first book, uh, they get a chance, they, they make a trap at the Mars site out in Barstow near, near the NTCT. They, they, they build up a trap and they bring in, uh, the bad guy, the West coast leader comes in, the girl comes in and they're able to trap them, you know, uh, in an, ex- in a fake exchange, things like this. And, the, the leadership won't let Shadow Tier lead, but with with Delta in the lead, they they are able to go across the border with the Mexican president's approval to attack El Chapo at a meeting. And and essentially Lance gets told to sto- stand down with El Chapo, you know, down down on the ground below the helicopter. Uh, so that's sort of how the first book ends. Uh, 
but it's not over, right? So it, well, it gives me a lot to write about before we capture, really capture El Chapo in 2014. So it's a, it's a, well, and, and so is the second book still called Loki's Deception? Well, that that was a working name. Um, my publishers worried that that people will think it's you know it's an Avenger movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and also um, uh, in the second book, what happens is somebody from Lance's cast comes out, where uh, what he was doing was uh, lazing a target that was supposed to be hit, and it turned out the target was not on target, but his wife and daughter were, and. So it's a, almost a reverse kind of revenge book. So we might switch, we might switch, switch book three in for two, but since they're written, you know, we can we can work that around. So it makes better sense in the timeline. But uh, yeah, the second book had to do with bioweapons and stem cells and things like that. So well, that's what I was going to ask. In in these future books, is it going to be about counter narcotics still, or will will you get into cyber warfare? Well, I do some cyber. I do some insider threat in all my books, uh, looking at indicators of behavior for insider threat and or what the bad guys are doing and a little bit of counterintelligence and stuff like that. So I weave pieces of those in. Uh, I, I'm working uh, on another book right now, uh, a fourth one, the, the outline for it, where it's very, it's got, it's got more cyber. It's got anonymous in it. It's got, you know, Cyber Command, JSOC, other people like that. So, yeah, there are effects that you can make, right? And that's the whole idea the Russians have is I could do this hybrid warfare, disinformation. I can do a, a cyber attack and make you blind for a minute and I can insert people or do other things. And so it is the way of warfare today, right? Um, to have all those capabilities there. Uh, sort of surprising we're not seeing as much use of cyber and ew once again in ukraine but um yeah so i try and mix it up but not make it if my wife can't understand it she slaps me around and says you need to back it up and explain that a little bit more she's my first line editor that's a perfect um, way to have it right because she considers herself a, an average reader you know if you're not a you know i i've read books before but you know that are so deep in lingo that sometimes I have to stop and think about what's that acronym. And that takes you out of reading the book and your enjoyment in the book. Right. So right. I want to keep them entertaining. I have a little bit of levity, right. It's, it's, it's guys, right. We used to jock up, get hard. And then our black humor was just what we did. You know, it's like, you know, so um, that's, that comes through in the books. And I really want it to be, you know, books about human people, humans interacting people interacting and then have some action sequences around it not just be you know a michael bay movie from start to finish you know so, right so yeah. let's talk about where people can find it now it's on pre-order right now it doesn't come out till june so how can people pre-order this book and then how can they get ready for the second and third book in the series yeah so right now you could pre-order the uh, am, uh, the Kindle version on Amazon. If you type in Shadow Tier, right, like in in Tier One, Two, Three, Four, Shadow Tier, or look up Steve Stratton, you'll see it. It's got it like you've got on your um, on your graphic here. It's got a dark dark cover shadow, hence Shadow Tier. Um, um, it's a great cover, by on, the way. Thank you, thank you very much. 
my publishers are really good with this kind of stuff. So the the, the uh, what we're working on now is actually uh, a giveaway plan. So we will be giving away what we call advanced reader copies, ARCs. You're, you're getting one, obviously. Um, something a, a little bit more cohesive than than what I originally sent you. And uh, I, I did uh, just fine scanning through on my computer. Good, good, good. Thank you. Um, but uh, we're doing a giveaway, and it's it's I've got I've got uh, morale patches. I've got numbered coins. I've got uh, coffee. I've got other books. I've got signed books by authors. All this stuff to give away before my publication comes out. You know, the book gets published on June 14th. So we'd give away the advanced reader copies. We do all that kind of stuff, and I have a grand prize that I'm going to announce that includes a uh, all expenses paid trip to Colorado for two people. Wow. Um, and uh, I'm not going to say what the surprise trip is, but if, if you come out here, we'll find something to do, right? We got, we got, we got hunting, we got fishing, we got climbing, we got, we got it all out here in California. It's why I stopped here when I left the, the East coast, but that's going to be an exciting uh, giveaway. And so we'll be working on that. And in the meantime, working on also how do we get you the link for a paperback or a, a hard copy, you know, a hardback and of, of course, certainly signed copies, stuff like that. So it's exciting right now. I'm working with my publisher and some marketing folks to get this all put together. I'll be putting out a new website, much cleaner, nicer than the one I cobbled together, you know, I actually hacked together. <laughs> so well, let's talk about that. That that's what I wanted to bring up next was Steve Stratton USA.com. Uh, they can go right. there, they can find out information on you, they can look at the book, they can see kind of progresses in the further books that are happening. And then you actually have a blog and you have a, a reading list. Now I want to talk about your reading list because as I look through it, it seemed to change over time. So if you start in 2020 and go to 2022. 2020 was more about nonfiction and kind of history lessons. And as you move through, it changes into the military thriller, the spy thriller, the action. Was there a reason for the change in your reading list on that? Well, I, yeah, I wanted to read some of the best people in the genre, right? Not to copy them, but to understand what re other readers are looking for, right? If you're buying Brad Thor, Brad Taylor, you know, Dachi, you know, you're uh, even Patterson, whoever you might like, you know, then I need to understand that because that's the kind of, you know, in some cases, that's the kind of author. I want to get to that thriller, military, intelligence-esque kind of audience. So, you know, I'm not going to write, I'm not going to copy, you know, uh, Jack Carr word for weird or Brad Taylor, but I appreciate what they're doing and, and how they're getting there. I'm always trying to learn my craft always i just signed up for another critique class where people are you know giving me feedback because i love to write a good story but that doesn't mean that it's you know fun and exciting for everybody else it's all in my head it's wonderful you know but you know it it needs right. to come out in a way that other people will enjoy it right um and i'm i you know i'm come i'm going to be comfortable comfortably retired i'm not doing this to make money, I do this because I enjoy writing and, and thinking of stories and, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, it's, it's, it's fun for me. And uh, yeah, I hope you come along. I'm looking at some other um, co new content, like 
you know, what's a, what's a deep dive? So Lance Bearwolf is my protagonist in the first book. He's Crow Indian. Well, what's some background on the Crow Indian other than, you know, the reservations in Montana, things like that. Um, you know, who did, who did I build him on? Chief Plenty Coop, you know. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of stuff like that, a lot more interesting stuff, um, I think, I hope. And uh, combined with that unique giveaway and stuff like that, I think it's going to be a fun time. Well, you, you mentioned a lot of the big names, but I really feel anymore in, in doing this show, the big names are great. Jack's been on the show. Uh, JT Patton's been on the show. There's been a lot mm -hmm. of people that have been on the show. Don Bentley is another friend of the show. But yeah. I really feel that that this, more than ever right now, is the the small, independent, kind of kick-in-the-door author's time right now. Like, to really grab those people by self-publishing or going through a company or whatever. But I really think that this is that time for those new authors and those ones that are just willing to throw it out there. Uh, I think it's their time. I think you would agree with that. Absolutely. And so it's interesting because as, as I got to know more and more people and, and read more books, um, I, I was able to connect with uh, uh, Brian, Brian Wilson of Andrews and Wilson, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you know, and, and, and the Valor series and other things like this. And so um, he said, he said that they were looking to expand and they certainly have, right. They're doing like four books a year between the two of them and they can, they can handle that. They're so simpatico, but he said, look, if you know, you can, you can wait until you make that big hit with the uh, Simon and Schuster or whatever, you know, and that, that'll be wonderful. But if you want to get your name out there and you want to learn what's going on, Think about going with somebody smaller, get it out there, get some feedback, learn, learn, just continue to learn how to write. And, and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll grow and adapt and, and those kind of things. So I, I, I took that, I, you know, I didn't go for the big number, you know, I'm going to pay off the house kind of, kind of, kind of uh, front of money and that kind of stuff. Um, and I am learning so much every day, you know, interacting with Forts Poseidon and, uh, best thriller books and other people who help, you know, uh, smaller authors like ourselves get our start. And then great people like, like, uh, like Brian and, uh, you know, Jack Carr and, and Eric Bishop and all these other guys are, are actually giving me feedback and good things, you know? And so I, I learned from all of that and it's great. And JT Patton, I mean, he, you know, I know where he comes from. I, I know what block he used to live on and where he used to work. And he does some amazing stuff. I really he, like He really that. does. The Shadow Masters are really good. And uh, you yep. look at people like Don Bentley. I mean, he's writing his own. And now he is picking up the Jack Ryan Jr. series. So, I mean. Yeah, I just got to meet uh, Don face-to-face -face for the first time in Austin a couple of weeks ago. He's great just guy. as nice as you see. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love his feedback. You know, and I send him pictures of SF operators clipped to the side of, of gunships every now and again to tell him, you know, <laughs> this is where the real pilots should be hanging out, you know, but stuff like that. We have a good time. Uh, he's, I love, I love his Matt, Matt Drake and Frodo series. I was at a, as a matter of fact, I was at a DIA conference and I'm like, Tan, where's, where's Frodo? You know, he's like, Frodo, are you kidding? He retired 20 years ago, but uh, yeah, good guy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, I will so tell helpful. you. Uh, his, his new stuff coming out is really good. So, oh yeah, yeah, like you say, uh, the, the 
Matt Drake series and then the Tom Clancy series. Yeah, he's he's rocking it. And I really enjoy it. So. I, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I really think you got something with your stuff. I, I really do. I think this is an area, and especially with with uh, your, your main character, I, I think that's something that hasn't been looked at since, like, a James Rollins with uh, – with uh, Pearson Gray in the Sigma Force series and stuff like that. So you're kind of covering a whole new area, and, and it's fantastic. Everything that I've looked at so far that you've sent me is fantastic, and I love the idea of this whole series that it's taken forward, and I'm so glad you signed the three-book deal with them. So I'm going to talk about a couple places people can find you. They can find you at stevestrattonusa.com, uh, Steve Stratton USA on Instagram, they can find you at Stratton Books on Twitter. And then uh, is there anywhere else they can find you? Well, like I say, if you look up that shadow tier on, on Amazon, if you want, you could, you could, you know, pre-buy the uh, Kindle version or just hold off a little bit and we'll, we'll get you, get you the ability to get the paperback and the hardback hardcover uh, versions of the book coming out. So, and, and then and if you sign up, if you sign up for the newsletter, which we're changing from my special access program to Steve Squadron. If you sign up for that, then you're in the giveaway. Then you're in the running for the giveaway and the big trip to Colorado from wherever you're at. Things like that. That that is an awesome idea. I love that idea that you're doing for this. So that's all the place you can find it. Of course, as always, we'll put the link on all of our social media where you can pick this up in Kindle version. And then uh, as they as the links start to come out, Steve, of course, you'll send them to me. We'll put them out there so people can pick up the hardback, the paperback, all those different things. And then um, once you update the website, please give us that one. We're going to put the Steve Stratton USA on there right now. But as you get the new one with the squadron and the signups and everything, please let us know and we'll put them all up there. Uh, guys, if you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD podcast, uh, DTT underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. You can see what Steve looks like. You can get a look at what the book looks like on the cover. And then if you'll look right here in the corner, this is a new QR code. Take your phone, put it against whatever you're watching, click on it, and it will take you to every single link we have. Uh, whether that be video, audio, Apple, Spotify, everything is right there at this QR code. So just click on it and it'll take you everywhere that we are. Guys, that's going to be it for the show tonight. Steve, I had so much fun you coming on here and hearing about this crazy career that you've had in this second chapter in your life. If you want some more of him, like we said, stevestrattonusa.com. You can find him on Instagram. You can find him on Twitter. You can find him on Facebook. You can find him pretty much everywhere on the internet. That's going to be it, guys. That's Steve. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one.